Welcome to Oddments, Episode 11. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg. Finding myself somewhat under the weather, I've called upon perpetual advisor and mentor Mark Twain to assist with this week's submission. Borrowing the voice of LibriVox volunteer John Greenman, Mr. Twain will share with us a few of his articles from the San Francisco Daily Morning Call of 1864. Please note that some of the language and descriptions provided would not be considered politically correct by today's standards. We'll be back with our normal magazine format next week. And one final note, LibriVox is a program by which volunteers read public domain works for your enjoyment. There are thousands of such articles, including many, many more things by Mark Twain and other famous authors. You can learn more about it at LibriVox.org. Now, Mr. Greenman. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 29, 1864. The Deaf Mutes at the Fair. The inmates of the Deaf and Dumb Asylum, to the number of about three dozen, visited the fair yesterday in company with their teachers, and kept up an unceasing and extraordinarily animated conversation about its wonders until their arms and fingers were utterly fagged out with talking. Poor fellows, we could not help thinking what a great advantage they have over ordinary people, for you might remove their tongues and break one of their arms and they would go on talking with the other all the same. These pupils talk with incredible rapidity, and their hands, bodies, and the muscles of their expressive faces are never at rest. They are always listening with their watchful, restless eyes, and no movement escapes them. The pupils of the public school at the corner of Fifth and Market Streets also attended the fair yesterday, in a crowd numbering between five and six hundred. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 29, 1864. After Mortimer. Detective Officer Rose is able to walk about the streets again, although the wounds he received at Mortimer's hands would have proved mortal to any but a petrified constitution. Rose's left hand is still in a badly crippled condition, and his little finger will have to be cut off. He says that when Mortimer struck him on the head with a stone, in the twilight of that eventful evening, the blow stunned him somewhat, but did not render him unconscious. He grappled with his man, but found that he was unable to cope with him, and when he was stabbed through the windpipe, he feigned death, and instead of spitting out the flowing blood that was threatening to choke him, he lay still and swallowed it. When Mortimer came back the second time and spoke to him, he did not answer, but the motion of his body, caused by breathing, betrayed him, and Mortimer commenced beating him over the head with the pistol. Rose counted the blows, down to the thump behind the ear that knocked him senseless. As we remarked above, Mr. Rose is now sufficiently recovered to be about again. He left yesterday to hunt for Mortimer, and has made up his mind to catch him. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 29, 1864. Advice to Witnesses Witnesses in the police court, who expect to be questioned on the part of the prosecution, should always come prepared to answer the following questions. Was you there at the time? Did you see it done, and if you did, how do you know? City and county of San Francisco? Is your mother living, and if so, is she well? You say the defendant struck the plaintiff with a stick. Please state to the court what kind of a stick it was. Did it have the bark on, and if so, what kind of bark did it have on? 
Do you consider that such a stick would be just as good with a bark on as with it off, or vice versa? Why? I think you said it occurred in the city and county of San Francisco. You say your mother has been dead seventeen years. Native of what place, and why? You don't know anything about this assault and battery, do you? Did you ever study astronomy? Hard, isn't it? You have seen this defendant before, haven't you? Did you ever slide on a cellar door when you were a boy? Well, that's all. Stay. Did this occur in the city and county of San Francisco? The prosecuting attorney may mean well enough, but meaning well and doing well are two very different things. His abilities are of the mildest description, and do not fit him for a position like the one he holds, where energy, industry, tact, shrewdness, and some little smattering of law are indispensable to the proper fulfillment of its duties. Criminals leak through his fingers every day like water through a sieve. He does not even afford a cheerful amount of competition in business to the sharp lawyers over whose heads he was elected to be set up as an ornamental effigy in the police court. He affords a great deal less than no assistance to the judge, who could convict sometimes if the district attorney would remain silent, or if the law had not hired him at a salary of $250 a month to unearth the dark and ominous fact that the offense was committed in the city and county of San Francisco. The man means well enough, but he don't know how. He makes of the proceedings in behalf of the sacred right and justice in the police court a driveling farce, and he ought to show his regard for the public welfare by resigning. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 30, 1864. More Children. It would have worried the good King Herod to see the army of schoolchildren that swarmed into the fair yesterday, if he could have been there to suffer the discomfort of knowing he could not slaughter them under our eccentric system of government without getting himself into trouble. There were about eight hundred pupils of the public schools in the building at one time. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 30, 1864. Robbery. John Bassett, who had a crowd of witnesses to prove that his honesty was almost miraculous, and that his character was a holy hash of all the Christian virtues, and who stood through it all in the prisoner's dock, stunned to learn it for the first time in his life, no doubt, was ordered to appear before the county court and answer to a charge of highway robbery committed lately on Pacific Street when he knocked a man down and took twenty-six dollars away from him. We have seen many a nice lot of witnesses in the police court, but those for the defense in this case could about discount the best of them in the matter of clean, straightforward swearing to doubtful propositions. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, October 1, 1864. Damages Awarded the case of William Galloway against C. F. Richards et al. in the Fourth District Court was brought to a close yesterday evening, the jury, after two hours' absence, returning a verdict for four hundred dollars in favor of the plaintiff. The action was brought to recover damages laid at two thousand five hundred dollars from defendants, who are druggists, for putting up a prescription in a wrongful manner, thereby causing a temporary injury to plaintiff's health. The verdict took some, who had heard the evidence throughout, by surprise, and a motion will be made on behalf of defendants for a new trial. 
the truth of the matter is that in ninety-nine cases out of a hundred of these mistakes in putting up prescriptions the whole blame lies with the prescribing physicians who like a majority of lawyers and many preachers write a most abominable scrawl which might be deciphered by a dozen experts as many different ways and each one sustain his version by the manuscript when a physician writes the abbreviation of pulverized cinchona in such a manner that nine out of ten among experienced pharmacists would without hesitancy read it pulverized cantharides and damage results from it if the apothecary is culpable at all the physician certainly ought to come in for a share of blame it would be a good thing for the world at large however unprofessional it might be if medical men were required by law to write out in full the ingredients named in their prescriptions let them adhere to the latin or fiji if they choose but discard abbreviations and form their letters as if they had been to school one day in their lives so as to avoid the possibility of mistakes on that account the san francisco daily morning call october second eighteen sixty four everybody wants to help california is a noble old state the echoes of the cry of distress jingle with the ring of dollars dr bellows says we're poor but don't know it but generous and can't help it and dr bellows knows almost every few minutes we receive a little note like this mr h burr proprietor of the pavilion restaurant will give all the profits from the receipts on monday day and evening to the santa barbara sufferers all the hands connected with the restaurant will also volunteer their services mr perkins drops in to say that the proceeds of his sale of fruits will be devoted to the same noble object also the receipts of the sanitary cheese exhibition the san francisco daily morning call october second eighteen sixty four the last hitch at the mint all of the officials in the mint have for the last six months had a hard time of it and some of them a very hard one for six months they have received nothing until yesterday although there has been money enough here to pay a portion of their demands some technical objection on the part of the treasurer mr cheeseman is said to have been the cause latterly mr swain the superintendent after long effort succeeded in getting a positive order to use any money to the credit of the mint in the payment of the officials as treasury notes have fallen very much since a portion of their pay was due mr swain having authority allowed the payrolls to be made out in such amounts as would make up to the recipients an amount in gold at present prices of greenbacks equal to what their pay would have been if received when due this is strictly just most of the officials were thus paid three months salaries of the six due but two of the unfortunate clerks chanced to be the appointees of the treasurer who objected to pay their salaries unless the additions mentioned were abated Mr. Swain declined to thus make out their payrolls, knowing that if thus paid they would resign. They are faithful, honest, competent, and he cannot at once, if at all, supply their places. If they resign, the operations of the Mint must stop for a while at least, and they cannot afford to remain for the pay insisted upon by Mr. Cheeseman. The result yesterday was that after waiting six months for their pay, they left the Mint, not having received a dollar. They are poor men, we hear, and greatly need their pay. 
If the operations of the Mint should cease tomorrow, we presume it will be because Mr. Cheeseman desired to make capital with the Secretary at the expense of Mr. Swain, by showing that his appointees can be forced to submit to any loss which his own pertinacious technicalities have caused. The treatment of these men is not only unjust but cruel, and the effect upon the public will probably be great inconvenience and loss to all who have dealings with the Mint. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, October 6, 1864. An Interesting Correspondence A case was brought before Judge Shepard yesterday afternoon on preliminary examination, which involved some nice points, and also enriched the polite literature of the country with what Mr. Cook, counsel for one of the parties, termed foreign correspondence, a number of epistolary communications equal to the productions of Madame de Savigny or the Countess of Blessington. One of the questions presented was whether a Chinaman's wife is hisn or hern if you want her. Ah Chung had a friend who had a wife. Friend was in the mountains, wife in this city, and Ah Chung in Chasta. Ah Chung visited the city and delivered to his friend's wife what purported to be a letter from her husband, directing her to pack up her trunks and go to him, the messenger to be her escort. She packed up, and Ah Chung took her to Chasta for his own use. She found herself betrayed and in durance. A female friend of her own nation sympathized with her, and wrote a letter informing a friend of the distressed captive in this city of Ah Chung's infamy, Bulwer Lighten, couldn't have done it more eloquently, stating that the perfidious Ah Chung claimed the woman as his property, and asked two hundred dollars to redeem her. A correspondence on the subject followed, resulting in the liberation of the abducted victim, though without her baggage, which had been confiscated by the avaricious Ah Chung. The denouement was Ah Chung's being held yesterday by Judge Shepard in the sum of twenty-five hundred dollars, to answer in the county court to a charge of grand larceny. The letters, which were written, of course, in Chinese characters, were translated by Mr. Charles Carvalto, and afforded an interesting specimen of sentiment and condolence as expressed by they of the Flowery Kingdom. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, October 8, 1864. A Rough Customer. Benjamin Roderick has been arrested on charges of malicious mischief, carrying a concealed weapon, and assault with a deadly weapon with intent to kill. Yesterday morning, shortly after midnight, he went to the house of Mary Roberts, and got into a quarrel with her, and drawing a bowie knife, threatened to take her life. He went away, and afterwards returned, renewed his threats, and proceeded to smash up all the furniture in her house. He created havoc and destruction on all sides, and ended by breaking the windows with large stones. At last the cries of the woman attracted the attention of Special Officer Forner, and he was about to arrest Roderick when the latter broke away and ran. Forner fired his pistol in the air, which frightened the fugitive, and he stopped and gave himself up. Besides his bowie knife, he carried on his person a murderous weapon in the shape of a short-handled hatchet, an equipment calculated to make him rather formidable at short range. Roderick had been marching with the Broom Rangers, and the woman says he was drunk when he entered her house. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, October 9, 1864. The Roderick Case. The would-be desperado, Roderick, who threatened the life of Mary Roberts in a house in Broadway, on Thursday night, 
was tried and convicted in the police court yesterday morning on three separate charges. The first charge was carrying a concealed deadly weapon. He had a pocket full of them—a bowie knife, a short-handled hatchet, and a hat full of bedrock, with a trace of quartz in it. The second charge of assault with a deadly weapon was sustained by the testimony of the complaining witness, Mary Roberts, who swore that Roderick seized her and aimed a blow at her with his bowie knife, when Providence provided her with invisible wings. She said she knew she had wings at that moment of her utmost need, although they were not palpable to her imperfect mortal vision, and she flew away. She gently soared downstairs. Judging by the woman's general appearance and her known character and antecedents, this interference of Providence in her behalf was remarkable, to say the least, and must have been quite a surprise to her. The third charge was of malicious mischief. It was shown in evidence that he wantonly destroyed furniture belonging to the woman worth one hundred dollars. The prisoner was ordered to appear for sentence on all three of the charges tomorrow morning. Roderick killed a man once. He is rather a bad-looking man, but probably not nearly so dangerous as one might suppose from his lawless conduct. He has bad habits, similar to those of many a professedly better man, and he carries an armament better suited to a fortress than a well-meaning private citizen. All these things are against him, and he deserves to be punished for having them against him, and for breaking furniture that did not belong to him. He was not anxious to kill the woman, though, or even do her a bodily injury, as his opportunities for doing so were ample, and he threw them away. He might have made a good sensation item for the newspapers, and he carelessly threw that opportunity away also. Roderick is a useless encumbrance any way you take him. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, October 9, 1864. Miscegenation. A case of the most infernal description of miscegenation has come to light in this city, a mixture of white and Chinese. A Chinaman married a white woman in New York ten years ago, has had children by her, and has been living with her here in Sacramento Street. Latterly, for some cause or other, he has become abusive toward her, and has several times beaten her. Finally, influenced by white friends, and by another beating at the hands of her pagan husband, on Thursday evening she left him, and applied to Chief Burke for protection, bringing two mixed children with her. A special officer tried to rescue her from this last assault, and succeeded in diverting the bulk of it to himself, receiving several powerful blows to his share, and giving several in return. The main Chinaman escaped from him, but he captured an accessory and brought him to the station-house. Officer Evett accompanied the woman back to the place to protect her while she got possession of her clothing, and she is now living with some friends in Hinckley Street. She is quite handsome, and of prepossessing appearance and address. One of her children is a very pretty little girl. She has had four children by her Chinaman. Late last evening news came that the husband had been captured and confined by the mate of the ship Smyrniote for stealing, and Officer Evett went down to take charge of him. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, October 9, 1864. The Comanche. The Monitor Comanche is rapidly approaching completion. The side armor of wood is all on, but about twenty feet at the stern, making nearly three and a half feet of solid wood on the sides of the monster from stem to stern. 
the work of putting on the five inches of iron plating outside of the wood is being pushed rapidly forward, and already about seventy feet from the prow is completed. For the last two or three days the workmen have been putting the iron plates on the deck, and about one thousand feet of the deck has been covered with the two plates of iron designed for it. Those who wish to see the monitor again before she is launched, and while they can witness the manner of securing the enormous weight of wood and iron with which the sides are covered, will do well to do so to-morrow or within a few days, as she will soon be wholly encased with her impenetrable coat of mail. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, October eleventh, 1864 Had a fit a lad of some twelve years was seized with convulsions while sitting in a buggy at the corner of Sacramento and Montgomery Streets yesterday afternoon. Restoratives were speedily brought in play, and in a short time the youth went on his way, viewing with astonishment the multitude that had collected, which was variously estimated at from one thousand to four thousand eight hundred and eighty. One kind-hearted person, whose condition, unfortunately, bordered on the salubrious, had his place close to the convulsed boy, and puffed smoke from a villainous cigar into his eyes with seeming industry, until gently remonstrated with by a policeman, on whom he turned furiously, insisting upon tobacco-smoke as an infallible remedy for fits, and that he would give the officer fits if he interfered further. However, during this sanitary dispute, the subject had come to and gone off, and the opportunity for determining fully the efficacy of burnt tobacco and whiskey fumes in cases of fits was unfortunately lost for the present. End of section 46